Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. So this morning, as you know, we've been uh, doing a series, or we've just started a series about He Will Fight For You, and it's about the battles uh, that God calls us into and the battles that God uh, invites us into. And so today we're going to be talking about uh, the Judge Deborah. And, and the question is, is whose story are you living? But before we get there, so do you remember how I've said that I was a very cute baby? Who's laughing? Who's laughing? I can't see the moss here. Okay. I was a really cute baby. Okay. I was even a cute little kid. All right. And so um, I'm the eldest child uh, of my mother, and my mother is the eldest of six. Okay. And she had me when she was 28. And then my grandmother um, decided to ruin my life and had a lot lamaki. No, she didn't ruin my life. But you know what a lot lamaki is? It doesn't sound the same in English. Late lamb. Not the same. Okay, but so I have an uncle that is three years older than me, okay? Uh, I had the privilege of the first four years of my life actually living with my grandmother, and so obviously my uncle was there as well, Pauli, and um, this is us. Look at how cute we are. Come on, guys. That's cuteness, okay? That is cuteness. That's my mom in the middle, and, and so um, we, we spent a lot of time together. To say that we fought would be an understatement, Okay? Because, of course, he would tell me in German, Ich bin schließlich dein Onkel, which means I am, after all, your uncle, okay? And that I must respect him, to which I, as a twerp, would say, respect is earned. I mean, it was just high intelligence arguing there, all right? Um, and so we used to fight a lot. Oh, man, I was cute. Don't know what happened, but yeah, okay. Um, I, re I remember, uh, we were, you know how it is when you look back at your younger years and you realize you were actually really poor as a family. I don't know if you've ever done that. But those were the best days of my life, okay? Just being with my family. And, and the highlight was we'd, we'd have this go-kart and we'd drive out, we're in Lourdes, we'd drive out to the lagoon, attach a rope to the go-kart from the cart to the go-kart and just drive round and round. But man, oh man, did Pauli and I time each other, you know? And the second one person went a little bit longer. Oh my goodness, okay? We would fight so much. I remember the one time, I'm sure his story's on me, but he's not here right now, so you can't tell them. But um, we were riding this little skadonk of a scooter and the same thing, you know, nobody rides longer than the other one. And then he threw a stick at me. Oh, sorry, he threw me with a stick. That's more how we like to say things around here. Uh, he threw the stick at me and it, and it hit me here and I had a blue eye, so guess who got into trouble? Not me, okay? And that's how we fought. Uh, I heard afterwards that he once told my grandmother that um, he loves me, but man, he's glad when I'm not there, okay? So it was, it was, it was just, it was intense. But um, the thing that I remember is that Pauli would not budge. His, his name is Paul, but we call him Paul. He would not budge. He'd make a decision, and there's nothing worse for this stubborn German when somebody makes a decision and I can't change it. And so we fought a lot. Now, here I am as a very wise 40-year-old, okay, <laughs> and that is one of the, the sweetest relationships I have, is with my Uncle Pauli, and um, I, just, I just enjoy that so much, because we've grown, and what, what was a huge uh, fight as a, as, as a kid is now one of the sweetest relationships, and so uh, nothing changed except our perspectives. So when, when you look around, 
I see now the huge value in relationships. And, and so I just want to give all you siblings out there, I want to give you hope, okay? The fights that you have now, they will change. One of my greatest regrets in life, and I, and I mean this, and normally I cry, but I don't think I will today, is that I didn't value the time I had with my sister as a kid. Now, again, we have the sweetest relationships. And so God does something there. And so today we're going to be looking at a story of relationships and conflict. And I just realized I didn't put a blank slide, so you're going to have to look at that for a while. Okay. But um, this is a story about relationships and conflicts. And we find it in in Judges chapter 4 in the Old Testament. And so there are a couple of characters that we need to know about. We need to know about the Israelites. Okay, we're going to meet the Israelites. We're going to meet King Jabin, who's the Canaanite king. We're going to meet somebody called Sisera, who is the commander of the army of King Jabin. We're going to meet Deborah, who was the prophet who was judging judging Israel at the time. And so you will see that she is one of the many judges that were there. We're also going to meet someone called Barak from Kadesh, who we can assume was a warrior. And the story goes something like this. So we open up in Judges chapter 4, and the first line is that Ehud dies. Now Ehud, if you recall, uh, was a judge that has a very cool story. So, you know, we work with kids, and they think that sometimes the Bible is boring. So we tell them the story, because what Ehud did was he went and killed King Eglon, who was a rather large dude, and when he stabbed him in the stomach, the fat closed over the sword. You can imagine, kids are going, ew, and we're like, told you the Bible wasn't boring. Okay, so, so Ehud dies, and, and then the scripture says, again, Israel did evil. And what a sad, sad word, again. And so when you have a look, especially at the Old Testament, there's this pattern, okay, and the pattern goes with the, with the people of Israel and God. The people have peace and prosperity, okay, for many years, and then life is like just too good. I don't know why we do that as people. And then they rebel against God. God allows them to get oppressed. Okay, The Israelites have to live in the consequences of their sin for a while. Then they cry out. Then God raises someone. Then there's peace. And we start the whole cycle again and again. And I think that sometimes it's easy to look at them and go, oh, man, those, the, could they not learn? But I want to ask you, how many of us have that in our own lives? I've seen that in my own life where... Um, each time God will show me something, I will believe it, and then I'll start wavering, and then I have to have God tell me the truth all over again. Thankfully, my, my cycle, my little you know, circles that I walk aren't as big as they used to be, but hopefully one day, myself and I think all of us, when we face those challenges, we can go, like Peter, where else can I go? That we are not like those Israelites that do the same thing over and over again. Okay, so... The Israelites do evil, so God allows them to be oppressed by King Jabin, a Canaanite king, okay? And Sisera is the commander of the army, and it says that he, he ruled ruthlessly. So I looked it up, and that is without pity or compassion. And he oppresses them for 20 years. So for 20 years, Sisera oppresses them. Only then, only then do the Israelites cry out after 20 years. How long will it take? Okay, so guys, everything I'm saying to you, God has first challenged me about, okay? So how long does it take us before we cry out to the Lord? How long do we have to sit in our own muck, our own mud, our own mire, before we cry out to the Lord? In this case, it took the Israelites 20 years. 
And, and I think about um, where we are in our nation right now. And I think about that verse in Chronicles that says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, that he will hear us and he will forgive our sins and heal our land. And I think very often it, it might be easy to say, but I'm not part of the problem. But God calls us to be cheesy. God calls us to be part of the solution. And we as a people need to, to pray. We need to humble ourselves. We need to pray and we need to act. So then, after we hear about this whole story, we're introduced to Deborah. And Deborah is a prophet who is judging Israel at the time. Okay? And we see that the whole Israel nation is going to her for judgment. So she's the one that dispenses uh, uh, wisdom and judgment and, and helps the people kind of navigate uh, the world of that day. And so we see that the Israelite nation is oppressed by Sisera under King Jabin, and Deborah is the judge. Okay. So then one day, she calls for Barak. And so when we read scripture and we, we, we read a guy whose name was Josephus, who did a lot of, uh, he's a historian, we see that he was a warrior. And Deborah gives this message to Barak and says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun of, at Mount Tabor. So many names. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. We then read that Barak said the following. And finally, we can go away from our cute face. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. So when you first read that, what's your impression of Barak? <laughs> what? <laughs> I heard something, but, but you kind of read that and go, <laughs> okay, because, okay, so you know I'm a teacher here. Very often the girls, girls will go, ma'am, can I go to the bathroom? And then there's like the stream, because we girls can never go alone. But you know what I've discovered? Boys are like that too, okay? But this is like, I'm going, guys, if you, are you, what's happening here? Okay. But we read this and we go, oh, shame, shame. He needed poor Deborah to go with him. Okay. But how about this? Okay. Because as, as you spend some time reading, how about this? What if, what if Barak knew that the enemy was so formidable? Because what we also read about Sisera is that he had 900 chariots. Okay. So he had 900 iron chariots and that he had a very formidable army. I mean, he was able to oppress the nation for 20 years. And so, Barak knew that he only had 10,000 men, and that these 10,000 men, uh, you know, who have been under the oppression of the Canaanites, they probably weren't hardened warriors, okay? And they probably didn't have everything, you know, they definitely did not have chariots. So what if he knew that the only way that this battle would work is if he had the voice of the Lord coming with him. And remember, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the privilege, the incredible privilege we have, where the Holy Spirit speaks to each one of us through Jesus. So what if he said that, not because he was scared, but because he knew that this was a battle that would only be won if God was with him, and that only the presence of Deborah, who was speaking God's words at those day, in those days, would be needed to make that battle won? What if he knew that even though he had the experience, that he needed more than his experience to overcome? And what if he knew that, that even though it would be a hard battle, it was only God that would allow it to be won? 
I think sometimes that uh, in our own lives, it's so easy to separate work and God. I don't know if you find that. And, and I think here, Barak shows us that he understands that those two come together. You think about uh, in work, uh, we, um, it's difficult. And we sometimes say it's not professional to bring your, your belief system into work, you know. Or we say that it might make us look weak and soft. Or maybe it won't allow us to do our jobs properly. Or maybe we'll be taken advantage of if we bring God into our workplace. But I can tell you for myself, God sets a higher standard than any person does in my own life. And he, he doesn't call us to perfection, thank goodness, but he calls us to excellence. And so what if, even though I read we spend a third of our lives working, guys, a third of our lives working, and what if God wants us to integrate those two? So just like Barak took Deborah into battle, representing God's voice, I think God is calling each one of us to take God with us into the workplace. And, and like I said, I, I have to look at my own life and, and examine what does that look like? Um, it's... it's Kids are awesome. I love spending time with, with kids. And, and so in the classroom, it's easy. But what does it look like with my colleagues? What does it look like to live my Christian life with my colleagues at school? And so maybe that's what God is calling us to do. Can you imagine if each one of us took God into our workplace, what would happen to this country? Because if I look around in this room and I, I think of all the people that even though they aren't here, are part of our church, and I think of all the influence that God has given New Song Family Church, of the people that we come into, into contact with each day. Can you imagine if God was lifted up in those workplaces? How incredibly cool that would be. So then, Deborah replies, Very well, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. Now what I love here is that Deborah doesn't hesitate. As a true leader, she doesn't ask somebody to do something that she wouldn't do, okay? And so she doesn't waver. She goes with. And, he's, and she says to Barak, there will be no honor in this, in this quest for you. It will go to a woman. And we automatically assume that that woman would be Deborah, right? Okay. So this is the next line, and I absolutely love it. It says, so Deborah went with Barak to Gadesh. And so when I read that, I understand that Barak agrees that he'll go with, and that the glory and the honor won't be his. Because he understands that there are greater things at stake than his glory. He understands that as believers, we need each other. Last year, there was a, a conference um, held in honor of John MacArthur's uh, 50 years in ministry. And uh, they were having a conference, and the moderator uh, started kind of a warm-up game, and he said, give me, give me your gut response to one or two words. And so the, the um, moderator said, Beth Moore, who I'm sure most of you know, she writes Bible studies and speaks and all of that. And his response was, go home, uh, meaning that she had no place to speak. And, um, and in the weeks that followed, you can imagine there was quite an uproar. But that's not the point that I'm trying to, to discuss here. What I love about that whole situation is that Moore didn't reply to John MacArthur, to his comment of going home. She, she sent out a tweet that I think is just absolutely incredible. And this is what it says. I did not surrender. This is what Beth Moore wrote in reply. I did not surrender to a calling of man when I was 18 years old. I surrendered to the calling of God. It never occurs to me for a second to not fulfill it. I will follow Jesus 
and Jesus alone all the way home. And I will see his beautiful face and proclaim, worthy is the lamb. Whoopsie. Here's the beautiful thing about it, and I mean this with absolute respect. You don't have to let me serve you. That gets to be your choice. Whether or not I serve Jesus is not up to you. Whether I serve you certainly is. One way or the other, I esteem you as my sibling in Christ. I thought that was just such a gracious response to, to quite a, a rude statement. And, and what it reminds me of, and, and even now I'm, I'm feeling slightly convicted of saying a rude statement, but what I, what, I, what I love about that is that Beth Moore, like Deborah and Barak, see that it's not about us. It's about God's glory. It's about doing what God has called us to do. At the end of the day, when we stand before him, we can't say this person did this, this person did that. It's about us. And God gives each one of us a calling. And you better fulfill that calling. The unhappiest I've been in my life is when I've walked away from the calling of God. Yeah. So, this world at the moment is way too messed up for us as believers to be fighting amongst each other, to be fighting with each other. Okay. This world needs Jesus in my lifetime like never before. And, and, and scripture is so clear about unity. Not the person, by the way. John 17, 23. It says this, I am in them and you are in me. This is Jesus speaking. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That's how the world will know if there is unity. Romans 12, verse 4. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. This world needs each one of us. doesn't matter who you are. If you are male, female, black, white, colored, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. This world needs each one of us to share who Jesus is. In uh, Philippians 1 verse 27, it says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Isn't that incredible? It takes each one of us to show this world this dying and hurting world who Jesus is. And so we all have our role to play. We don't have time to fight with each other. So we continue with our story. So Barak and Deborah go up to Mount Tabor, and that's where Sisera, the army commander, hears about this, and he takes his, nine, uh, his uh, 900 iron chariots. So these are what the chariots look like. Okay? And what we know about that time of that is that they had these, I had to look up how to say the word or listen to it, sides. You see those little swords on the side there? And so what would happen, so remember that the 10,000 people of, of um, Barak were foot soldiers. And so these 900 chariots would ride up alongside the people, and obviously the swords would just mow them down. Okay? And so he had his entire army plus these 900 chariots. Okay? And I think that Sisera had full confidence in his army. So much so, I mean, he took his entire army with. He took them all with, and he thought this was going to be uh, annihilation. All right. And so we see that Barak then, oops, too far, too far, okay. And so Deborah says to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera. 
for the Lord is already marching ahead of you. So in this story, we see that God goes ahead, but do we stay behind? No. It says, Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of the Mount Tabor into battle. So this is Mount Tabor in, in right now. And as you can see, they were safe on the mountain because chariots can't go up like that, right? So what did God call them to do? To leave the safety of the mountains and to go down into the battle where he was leading. God doesn't call us to safety. I have a, a video. Um, we're going to do the video now, sorry, uh, that I asked Dana to film f- uh, for us last night. And so here's a video clip. When I was a child, I began to feel God's calling me uh, to be a foreign missionary, to go to a country uh, that was not my own, to share Jesus with uh, people who didn't know him. And uh, so when I married and Barry Nottingham and we had our three children, we went to Burkina Faso uh, with, to the Bisa people uh, to share Jesus, first people to come in to share Jesus there. And exactly a year after we entered the country, um, Barry passed away. And what was so amazing about our story was just a few weeks before he died, he shared, uh, had been sharing with a young man named Abdullah under a tree. And uh, Abdullah had just given his heart to Jesus. When I went back to pack up our stuff, Abdullah said, don't worry. I'll carry on where y'all left off. And he did. And 31 years later, Abdullah is such an amazing pastor. And with that people group there that we had gone to, to share Jesus with, our whole point of being there was for Barry to lead Abdullah to Jesus. That was the, the only reason we were there. And then we were gone. Would I do it again? I would. It's the worst uh, pain in my life that I've ever had so far, but I would do it again for the kingdom of God. Um, when we were appointed as missionaries, we gave my mom a plaque that said there's no safer place than in the center of God's will. And less than two years later, my mom's getting a call that Barry has passed away. She said she smashed that plaque because it's not true. We found that it's not safe following God. There's no, no promise of safety when you do what God's asked you to do. But would you do it? I would. I would follow him anywhere. And I'm thankful that he asked me to be a part of his work in Burkina Faso, part of Abdullah, uh, how God has used him. What a gift from God that he chose our family to use in that way. video breaking up, Abdullah currently is still leading people to Jesus after all these years. There's a quote by um, C.S. Lewis, and it's from the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of my favorite quotes, and it says, um, as an is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so when God calls us to follow Jesus, it's not safety that we've been called to. And so just as Brock had to leave the safety of the mountain to go where God was leading, our lives as believers isn't about safety. 
Some of you might know the story of, of Jim Elliott, who in 1952, he was called to, to go minister in Ecuador to the Orcas uh, a, a people group there. And after many, I think, three years of preparation, they finally had contact. And, and here you see them with a plane on the beach, and they had contact. And the next time they went back, they were excited to actually start their ministry. And um, that day, they were all killed. There were five uh, missionaries killed. He died for his faith. And, and he had this amazing line. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Years after that, his wife and, and children went back, and family of the other the missionaries that were killed by those people went back, and, and those people are now believers. Very similar to, to Dana's story of, of Barry and her husband. And so God does not call us to safety. If you remember the story of, of Stephen, who is one of the first martyrs in the Bible, he's busy sharing the story of, of Jesus, and, and we see that right at the end, and that's also the first time we see Paul, uh, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He's standing and he's holding all the coats. And so Stephen tells a whole story of Jesus to the, the Jewish leaders, and it says in uh, verse 54, it says, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. They then put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge him with a sin. And with that, he died. Physical victory is never assured. So the stories that we're looking at in the Old Testament, we see that very often God gives them the physical victories. But the world that we live in nowadays, <laughs> very rarely does God call us to, you know, go off to war. But we need to understand that, that our victory isn't a physical victory. The victory that God calls us to is a spiritual victory. He will fight for us spiritually. If you have a look in um, Matthew 25, verse 23, our prize isn't victory in this world. Our prize is that one day we stand before the Father and we hear him say these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And then I love that last line. It says, enter into the joy of your master. There's our victory. In this world, we are not guaranteed at all of safety, of comfort, of health, of wealth. We're guaranteed victory in him. I always go, how can we believe that everything will just be amazing when the very basis of our religion, our foundation, is on the fact that Jesus died a horrible, painful death? That he died and that he rose again. And Jesus says to us, we must pick up and follow our cross. It's not that beautiful. I had a beautiful little gold cross. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the physical pain that you went through and, and the suffering. And so... When, when I look at this, I'm, I'm reminded the comfort that I seek in my life is not what God calls us to. And so as we continue in the story, we see that God gives the Israelites a phys physical victory. As Barak attacks, God throws Sisera and all of his armies and chariots into panic. And then, you know, as add insult to injury, Barak has to, uh, Sisera has to abandon his chariots and he says he runs away on foot. Okay, uh, Barak kills all the warriors. In the meantime, Sisera goes to, to the tent 
of a lady called Jael, where he asks for shelter. Uh, he gives her, she gives him shelter, gives him some milk, covers him, and then puts a pig through his head. <laughs> a little bit of a different understanding of hospitality than we have nowadays. Um, but that's how she, she kills him once he's asleep. Barak comes looking for Sisera, finds, uh, finds Sisera is dead, and that's how the words of Deborah are fulfilled, that Sisera will die at the hands of a woman, not as he thought. And so we read in the next chapter, Deborah starts, does this amazing poem, and, it's, and it ends with that soon King Jabin is destroyed and that there was peace for 40 years. And when I read that story, it's just such an incredible story, and there's so much we can learn. What's sad is that Judges 6 opens up with the Israelites did evil in God's eyes and God let them be oppressed by the Midianites for seven years and then we see Gideon being raised up. And so again, they do the cycle. And so the, the, the characters in this story are, are Deborah, who fulfills her calling from God, never wavers. Even though she's a woman, she speaks God's word. She stands strong, she leads. We see Barak following God's call but needing Deborah to go with him. We see Sisera who relies on his own strength and then dies at the hand while asleep, which I understand is not a good thing as a warrior. Okay? We see Jael, who is, is Jael. How do I say that? Jael? Okay. Anybody named? No? Okay. But we see that, you know, that she kills Sisera. And as my little niece would say, when you look at all of this, you go, a drama! <laughs> no? And you think, oh, wow, that's a lot of drama in one story. And, and you look at all that and you go, okay, okay. And so remember the question is, whose story are you living? But there's one very important thing when I look at this story. And that is that there's more to the story that meets the eye. Because the main character in this entire story is God. And this whole story is about the relationship that God wants to have with his people. That's what it's all about. And so we see that every relationship, every time we encounter a person... We need to understand that we are either that we are part of the process of either bringing uh, that person to God or where God brings that person unto Himself, or we are part of the excuse that that person has. Okay. The scariest thing for me is when a kid comes up to me and goes, "Sibylla, do you remember when you said?" And I just start flinching because I'm like, "What did I say?" Because you know sometimes you make a joke or you say, and they take things out of context. And so, to me, that is, that is the, the, one of the heaviest weights to carry, is to understand that we, God calls each one of us. And, and so, I always love C.S. Lewis. And so, here's another quote by C.S. Lewis. Because can you ever have enough C.S. Lewis? The answer is no, in case you're wondering. Okay. So, the things we do matter. Every day, every encounter, that cashier, that you smile and look in the eye. Okay. All those things matter. Um, one of my, um, Dana always laughs at this, uh, we were driving to YWAP on one Friday afternoon, and it had been a long week, you know those long weeks, and uh, so we're heading to YWAP, it must have been about half past five, and I came to the robots here, and you know all the guys standing there at the robots by VIS, and so I had my window open, and so he comes to me and he asks for money, and I'm like, sorry, I don't have any money, so then he, he starts going... And I'm like, I'm sorry. And, he, and he, he, he doesn't, and then he finally says some. he said something, I think. And so I just went, no, dude, and I closed my window. That was my great expression of, of, um, of what would we call it, of I'm tired of you, no, dude. 
very intense, okay? But that day, I look back and I go, was that the best way to deal with people is to close the window in their faces? And so it's a scary thought when God calls us uh, to love people. And so this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to one day may be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never spoken to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is so... Uh, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Quite a quote, eh? Thankfully, God knows who we are and that, that every day we need to try and become more like him. And so C.S. Lewis continues and says, This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of a kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Peop guys, we need to understand that God will bring people to himself in spite of us or with us. But he will do what he has set out to do. And so we, as, as, as people of God, we need to understand the battle for what it truly is. If you read in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That is where our battle is. I, I love the story of Elisha. There's this amazing story where he's being uh, attacked by, I think, the Arminians or somebody. And, and this is what it says in Second Kings. It says, When the servant, of God, uh, the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine if, if we prayed that right now and God would show us right now what's actually happening in the spiritual world? That would be so awesome. And so what does this all mean for us today? I believe that when I read this, we need to stand for, for what is right and true. But be reminded of the verse in John chapter 1, verse 17, that says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. And I think that sometimes as believers, we err on either side. We either think that all things are permissible, that all things are forgivable, that we can live our lives as we want to, and that there is always forgiveness. That is the case. There is forgiveness. But Paul says, you know, if there's grace, does it mean we should sin more? Not at all. And so as believers, God calls us to live in grace, but there is also truth. And so uh, when I look at my, my life, um, I need to be reminded that, that people who don't know Jesus act like people who don't know Jesus. And so we, we need to have, have grace for them. As believers, we know what Jesus calls us to. I also know 
that nobody has, well, nobody that I know of has ever come to Jesus from somebody yelling in their face, turn or burn, dry or pry. Okay? <laughs> nobody I know has ever come to Jesus and gone, oh, Jesus loves me. Okay? And so we need to have grace and truth. And I love the story in John chapter 8 where Jesus, where the woman that's caught in adultery uh, comes before Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He, he, he writes in the ground, which I think is awesome because that lady would have probably been in some state of undress. And he's not looking. He's not shaming her. I mean, how awesome is that? And so he says, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And the leaders of the church leave. And it says the, the eldest first. Because one thing I do know with all my 40 years of wisdom is I know myself more. And I know how capable I am of, of being ungodly. And so they leave. And so what does Jesus do? He says, I forgive you. And then that's the grace part. And then comes the truth part. But sin no more. And so Jesus is this perfect picture of grace and truth. And so we need to stand for what is true, but we need to do it in such a way that people will be drawn to Jesus. Who did Jesus hang out with the most? Unbelievers, sinners. Okay? And they were drawn to him, and they followed him, and they changed their lives. And that's what God calls us to. We need to understand as we close here, that unlike Deborah and Barak, we are not actually really called to a physical battle. Very rarely are we. But we are called to a spiritual battle. And the battle that we have is for people's souls, the eternal destination. That is what God calls us to. And so my prayer for, for each one of us is from Ephesians chapter 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so my question to each one of us is, whose story are we living? Are we living the story of Cicero where he, he works in, or he, he acts in his own might and he doesn't see the big picture? Are we living the story of, of Deborah and of Barak where we see that the battle is greater than what we see in front of us? That God has called us to a mighty battle of being part of, of his kingdom coming to this earth. And so my challenge is that as you go throughout this week, ask God, how do you fight for the people's souls in front of you? How do you share Jesus in such a way that they see who he really is? That's a challenge that I have, and I think it's a challenge for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for um, just such an awesome time in your presence. Lord, I thank you that your word has so much truth and, and, and that we can, we can put all of our weight and all of our understanding on it, and it will always stand true. So, Lord, I thank you that you call us to unity. You call us to, uh, to be part of the people going out and, and bringing your name uh, to a lost and dying world. So, Jesus, I thank you this morning. And, and I know that each one of us has, has stories right now, places of, of hurt, places of, of worry. And I thank you that you are greater than those and that that you are willing and wanting to show us how we can live in victory through those areas. So Jesus, I thank you for your incredible grace 
your incredible love, and your incredible truth. Ask this all in Jesus' name. This is Rico Vecca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.